Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. Good to see you. Good to see you with the blinds up. The good Lord gave you an extra hour of sleep and we gave you a little bit extra light. How about that? So we're going to make sure you stay awake today. Uh, for those of you that are online, thank you for uh, tuning in. Before I bump into the sermon, let me uh, say, so November 20th, as mentioned, is our, our covenant membership celebration. Then on Sunday, the following day, uh, neither David or I will be preaching, but uh, one of my best friends in the world, a dear brother to me, besides The pastors of this church, and besides Jesus, this dude has been the most influential man in my life. Uh, His name is Justin Dean, and he is an incredible communicator. He's been incredibly faithful to love us, serve us, give to us financially as a church. Like, he's been awesome. And so he'll be here November 21st. I've been posting stuff on my Facebook. They have an incredible podcast called The, the, uh, the Sacred Life. It's just, it's great. He's great. He loves hitting good, uh, cultural topics from a gospel perspective. So if you have questions about anything that's happening right now in the world, uh, he's addressed it in his podcast. He is uh, incredible, just incredible, faithful uh, dude, all right? So come check him out. He's going to be awesome. Uh, We're currently in a series called Lest We Turn, where we're looking at uh, the single longest narrative in antiquity, or the longest narrative in ancient times about a single individual, uh, and that's King David and his trek to the throne. And so we're currently looking at uh, kind of this tension between King Saul, who was the human Israeli uh, appointed king, and then King David, who was God's anointed uh, king. And so what's interesting is if you've done the readings, we're actually kind of, we're setting in this tension right now, and if you can kind of think about it like a movie. Uh, There's going to be a lot of cut scenes that are going to go back and forth from where King Saul is and where King David is. And so the director is kind of cutting back and forth for them. We would see Saul in one scene would be hiding in fear as the Philistines are coming against him. The Philistine army has actually positioned themselves in such a way that they've cut the Israelite army in half. And so Saul's there again, cowering his fear in fear, just as he did before Goliath. And so you would, if we're watching this as a movie together, we would see Saul's trying to figure out, like, what do I do? How do I survive? Why isn't God talking to me? Why is God remaining silent? And then you would have King David, who's kind of like, it's kind of nuts if you've done the reading. I imagine we'll hit this next week. But on the other side of this, you have King David, who has went to the Philistines, made his way up through the ranks there, totally lied to all the political figures, got in good with the king, and now the king has invited David to be the, his bodyguard, or in the Hebrew, the protector of his head, which is ironic because he cut Goliath's head off. And so a little bit of comedy in there, right? David's like, yeah, I got your head. Okay, I got you. Okay. And so what's interesting though, is he says, I want you to be my bodyguard. King David is about to enter into battle against his own people, which is not okay. He's obviously not been called to do. And so again, if this were a movie, you have these two scenes kind of simultaneously happening. The score is picking up in the film. It is a very, very dramatic time here in the story for us. And so instead of going back and forth and all that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on Saul. Then I imagine we'll hit King David's uh, side of the coin next week. Uh, The king here, think about this, King Saul, 
if you've been with us this whole time, unless we turn. King Saul enters into the story hiding in fear, lying on the ground underneath some baggage. You remember that? And so this king who comes into the story hiding in fear, lying on the ground in baggage, wishing he was dead, will find himself by the end of today lying on the ground in fear, wishing he were in fact dead. He's going to find himself in complete and in total, utter hopelessness. Not even fear anymore. Just no hope as God has remained and stood silent over him. So there's a big idea and then three uh, points to help us through the narrative. The big idea is this. Do not let what is eternal become impossible. Don't let what is internal, eternal become an impossibility for you. And then three points that I want to show you if you're a note taker to kind of keep us on track. One, we're going to see Saul's unchanging heart. His heart is unchanged. Secondly, we'll see Samuel's unchanging word. He just says the same thing to Saul that he's always said from the beginning. And then at the end, when we hit the gospel, we'll see Jesus's unchanging promise. The beauty of the gospel being that God's heart is unchanging and his word is unchanging. And we see both of those come to fruition in Jesus Christ. So if you fall asleep, there's the gospel for you. First Samuel 28, 5 through 11. Uh, Tristan, if you could put it up for me. First Samuel 28, 5 through 11. We're going to hit Saul's unchanging heart. When you're ready, say ready. Yep. It's a lot to read, so bear with me. When Saul saw, it's hard to say, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, who's actually with David now, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, servants, listen to this. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and acquire of her. The King James Version calls her a witch, the witch of Endor. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor, a witch at Endor, a necromancer at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and Two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. They're sneaking in undercover. And he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whatever I shall name you, or whoever, whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul, what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land, the only good thing he did. Why, why then are you laying a trap for me and for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as if his word matters, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And Saul said, bring up Samuel for me. Saul did not do much good as a king, but he did get rid of the necromancers and the mediums, or as the KJV says, the witches of the time. So what is a medium? What's a necromancer? What is a witch? I thought, man, this sermon should have came last week. It would have been a little bit better last week, wouldn't it? Witches and mediums and necromancers. Oh my, you know, like we could have really set in that for Halloween. A picture with me, what is a neck? I don't know about you, I'm really visual, so I picture like an old woman with a headdressing, smoking a Virginia Slim in a dirty old office space with like an indigo light that says open, that's kind of fluttering, it says cash only on the doors, the bell rings, you know, like you're going in there to get your palms read, tarot cards, she wants to find out if you're a sad, you know, whatever, whatever it is, cancer or Aries or horoscopes or whatever. It's kind of what is happening. They're going to invoke some sort of spirit. That's what a medium would do. And so King Saul did not follow much of God's law, but apparently he wanted to follow this one. So he puts away the mediums and the necromancers. And so what's interesting about that is that God's law strictly prohibited talking to the dead 
And so the question is not, can someone talk to the dead? The question is, should someone spend time trying to talk to the dead? If this is your first week at Heights, it's just, we're just weird, all right? It's just going to get weird. <laughs> apologize on behalf of, I'm just kidding, we won't apologize for God's word. But I was Googling the witch of Indoor, and I thought that this was, there's all sorts of stuff that come up if you want to find some crazies, okay? Google the witch of Indoor, okay? All sorts of crazy things come up. And, and I came across this, this guy who looked interesting, who was preaching this sermon, and he tries to convince the, his congregation that the witch of Indoor was just un- misunderstood, that she just, people didn't understand her because they looked at her a certain way and she looked a certain way to them, acted a certain way to them. And so she wasn't that bad of an individual. She was just misunderstood. And even at the end of this text, if we were to read, she does create, she has a whole meal that she gives to Saul. And so that pastor's like, you see how good she is. She's serving Saul and loving on Saul. She was just misunderstood. And if you just took time to get to know people that are misunderstood, then you would love them too. That's not at all what the Bible says. It actually says that she's an abomination. Yeah, huh, is right. So let's get into it. Let's read some Levitical law, shall we? Leviticus 19.31. Let's just see if she's just misunderstood. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out or so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, verse 6, the next one. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, uh, whoring after them, that's PG, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. I think misunderstood is the wrong word here. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be Upon him, this pastor did not read Deuteronomy 18. He's like, in case I were not clear, Deuteronomy 18, 10 says this. There shall not be found among you anyone, this is uh, what was happening in their culture, uh, outside of Israel, who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. We saw that in the book of Judges in this series. Or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination, not misunderstood, to the Lord. And because of these misunderstandings, no, that's not what I said. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations, that's the other nations outside of Israel. You should be blameless before them, which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, sorry, which you are about to, don't listen to those, sorry. But it's for you, that's what I'm saying. But it's for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. You shall be blameless before those nations who do. The woman is not just misunderstood, right? We, we can do a little research right now. The synonym for abomination is not misunderstood, is it? And so, you see, it isn't that spirits don't exist or that one cannot speak with the dead. I know that sounds weird. That's not stuff we typically get into in here, but the Bible does. The Bible doesn't say that it cannot happen. What the Bible says is that whenever people try to do that, it's an abomination to the Lord. And the reason that it is an abomination is because it's putting, God, it's putting someone else in the position of God to be the mediator between the flesh and the spirit. And so some then might say, well, God, well, Corey, you know, pastors, let me, let me just look. God redeemed pork. You know, that's Old Testament. They couldn't eat pork in the Old Testament. Look at us now, right? We're, doing, we're, we're eating pork all day. 
So maybe that's true for this in light of mediums and necromancers in, which is Acts 19 is fun, so we'll read that. Acts 19, 17 says uh, this. Um, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. This, that word there, meaning Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, became known to the people of Ephesus. Okay, If you were to read verse 16. And this became known to, all, known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Right, so this has been practiced all throughout Old Testament, all throughout New Testament. Even now we have many brothers, sisters, friends that turn to horoscopes. It's no different. What's interesting about this in, the light, of, in light of the Ephesian church there's a lot of things I want to say. I'm going to say this one and we'll bump on. Think about this. Whenever Judas betrayed Jesus, he did it for 30 pieces of silver. That would be $194 for us right now. Judas betrayed Jesus for $194. Whenever the Ephesian church came to faith and they started burning their books on Wicca and what it means, it was worth $4 million. They burned $4 million worth of books that day in front of the people. That's how much value the name of Jesus had for these new believers. And yet Judas walked with him and dimed him out for $194. They found putting anything else in the place of God was an abomination to God, not just a misunderstanding. So we don't get into this much, but we're going to take things serious that the Bible takes serious. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you to stop watching Twilight, even though it's about a 117-year-old dude dating a 17-year-old little girl, which you shouldn't watch for numerous reasons. <laughs> but you might want to burn your Ouija board. I mean, just because you bought it at Target doesn't mean it isn't demonic. Chances are, though, if you're not listening to God now, you're not going to listen to someone who professes to be God. He's going to remain silent for you. As well, what we see is that every aspect of this story reveals that one should not try to approach the dead in this sort of way. And here's how we know: because Saul sends other women, sends other people out to find this woman for him. Uh, Saul disguises himself, not just so that he would be seen as king, but so that she would not know that the king himself who put that law in place, um, in God's place, put that law in place, was not there before him. Saul heads out, it said, under the night of cover. So like everything that Saul is doing, he's doing to be disguised because he knows this is not the voice that he needs to listen to. And so the text, as I read, kept reiterating, the Lord remained silent. Of course he remained silent. God has done everything he needs to do for Saul. And what did Saul do? Saul killed the priest a few weeks ago in the temple. Saul goes in and kills the priest. What are the priests? The priests are the mediators between God and humanity. Not mediums, mediators. And Saul killed them if you were here for that sermon. Saul has only done everything necessary to push himself further and further and further away from God. And Saul is now seeking the, the, the voice of someone that's divine, but he's still not seeking the divine voice of God. He's going to divinity, but he's going to the wrong divinity, looking for hope. He's unwilling to listen to the voice of God, so he's pursuing these counterfeits. Listen, who do you go to whenever God stops telling you what you want to hear? What sort of counterfeit God, counterfeit voice, substitute Savior do you find yourself going to to kind of scratch your ears and make you feel good about your sins so you don't have to get out of it? 
That's what Saul is doing here. Right? He's hoping that God's going to tell him something else, and God has not told him anything else. Listen, for those that are unwilling to repent and actually go to the voice of God, and I don't mean, I don't mean voice of God's little G gods or some divine thing or some self-help book or some horoscope or whatever it might be, or someone you know in your MC that's not actually going to push back on you a little bit, but you go to all these other voices, these divine Voices, for those that go to those voices and are unwilling to repent and turn to the true voice that is Jesus Christ, do you know what the Bible says about that? It says in the book of Hebrews, it is impossible to restore them to salvation. Check this out. Hebrews is so heavy. You guys, can we get into it? Okay, here we go. Good, thank you. These windows up keep your attention, don't it? Listen to this. This is going to be heavy. I'm going to take you into somewhere heavy, and then we're going to go a little bit deeper into that, okay? For it is impossible, it says, Hebrews uh, chapter 6, for it is impossible, not improbable, impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible, church, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God the Son of God, to their own harm, holding him up in contempt. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that it has never actually been genuine repentance, that it's impossible to restore someone to relationship to Jesus when they were never actually in relationship with Jesus, just listening to all these other voices. And so what he's saying here quite literally is that you can come into a time such as this, Man, like you can come in here now and Jess and them can sing and it can, that voice in there, the, the voice of the guitar, the voice of Jess, the voice of Stephen, like whatever, can ignite in you like this emotion that makes you feel good and triggers you in a way that is good and positive and right and it kind of brings you into the throne room of grace and you can look around and you can see the movement of the Holy Spirit and people visibly responding, hands can be in there. You can come in and you can see people get baptized and hear the clapping hands as people are confessing faith and repenting and being dunked in front of everyone and the excitement that comes with that. You can feel and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can know that Jesus is the life and the truth and the way. You can experience, like you can confess sin and still not repent sin. And what he's saying is like you can go through all of the motions, every single motion that is a church. Look by a church, by every standard and by every measure, someone look at you and think, dang, that dude is probably a Christian. And at the same time, even though you can confess sin and not repent sin, you can know the name of Jesus. That's no different than the demons who shuddered at the name of Jesus. That you can do all these things, go through all these motions, listen, and not be in Christ, dead listening to all these voices, voice of your emotion, the voice of your experience, the voice of your own reason, and not the voice of Jesus as Lord and Savior over your life as the final word over your life. That's a, that's a scary place to be. Now we're going to bunch a little bit further into that. Every week when we do communion, okay, I read from you 1 Corinthians 11. Right? What I don't read from you is the warning the, the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11 about what happens when you take communion with an unrepentant heart. When you listen to all these other voices, you don't actually engage what it looks like to repent, not just confess sin, that's easy, but to actually repent, to turn to Jesus and see Jesus is better than whatever you're struggling with. Listen to what he says. Here's what happens to your heart. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27 through 32 says this. 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup, this comes after what I normally read, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You're actually eating your own guilt upon yourself. Let a person then examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly in Christ, we would not be judged, because Jesus took our judgment, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the the world. And so the Apostle Paul, what he's saying is this, when we don't actually listen to the voice that says, hey, you need to repent of that, you need to not just confess that, but repent of that. When you don't actually examine, when you don't take a look, when we don't look at ourselves and say, hey, what about my life actually looks more like Corey than it looks like Jesus? What we're doing in that moment, and here's where we're going to take it a little, a little bit deeper. What we do in that moment, when we take communion and we don't look at the cross and see Jesus is better than whatever sin or sins that we're struggling with, what happens in that moment is that we actually begin to eat judgment onto ourselves. And so there's a real spiritual element here that I'm not going to downplay. The Apostle Paul says, some of you are weak, and some of you are ill, and some of you are dying due to the Holy Spirit. That's a real, that's a real deal right there. And then there's also this physical reality here where some of the people in the church, professing Christians, have listened so long to so many other divine voices, so many other gods, so many other idols that the voices have spoke louder to them than the gospel. And so what happens then is whenever they listen to the voice of sex or the voice of materialism or the voice of financial freedom or the voice of entertainment or the voice of yoga or the voice of fitness or the voice of the next diet, whatever it is, when they say, because you're doing those things, you're doing really well, what happens whenever you take that communion, you eat that communion, the judgment that comes is that your heart does not just get harder and harder and harder and harder to the gospel, but rather your heart becomes impenetrable to the gospel. It's impossible to restore them, is what he says in Hebrews. And so what you're doing, here's why that happens. What you're doing in taking communion and not confessing and repenting of sin, you're saying, I'm celebrating the victory over sin that I keep swimming in. I'm celebrating the work of the cross although it's not changing me in this area. My heart is not being changed or restored in this area. And then you get so used to living in the discomfort of sin in that area that it becomes comfortable. And it becomes harder. Your heart becomes harder and harder and harder and harder to the point of, listen, where your heart is not just hard anymore, church. It's impenetrable. It is impossible to restore them to Repentance, it says. And then you come to a place, man, where it is no different than Saul. Where Saul is literally laying here on the ground, trying to hear now, trying to grasp for the voice of a God, any God, anyone that can bring him some level of hope. Listen, whenever sin goes on and remains unconfessed and unrepented of, we will find ourselves in the same position of Saul. And we'll be asking God, where are you? And saying things like, God, you feel distant. God, do you not listen? God, can you not hear? God, are you not? And here's the reality. In that moment, whenever your heart becomes so impenetrable by the gospel, the the answer to all your questions is yes. He has stopped listening. And he is not close anymore. Because it's it's impossible to restore that person. This is why I wanted to first set in that word, 
right? You're not just being misunderstood by God in the moment, you're being an abomination. Think about that. The Bible says all of the yes and amens of the Lord are found in Jesus Christ. The word of God put on flesh. You don't have to seek other voices. You can just seek after Jesus because he sought you. Right? The only divine voice that, that matters, the only divine voice that ever will ever stand yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that divine voice, the only voice that will actually bring you freedom to confess and to repent and to soften your heart is Jesus Christ. And listen, so if there's not a genuine confession and a genuine repentance, and what I mean by repentance is this, you confess something and then you look to the cross and you say, this is how Jesus is better than this thing. Jesus, you're better than this thing that I'm holding on to over here. You speak a louder voice to me than this thing over here. God, I really, I'm holding my marriage up in in a place that it doesn't deserve. Your relationship is the only one that matters. You're the perfect spouse. This spouse is not going to be perfect. You're perfectly full of grace and mercy and you're just and you're good and you're right. I'm not those things. We're not going to find that thing in our marriage. God, help me to take my marriage off a pedestal and put you back on it. Like the loudest voice, you understand? The only divine voice that matters. Listen, his voice is the only voice that will actually change your heart. Have you confessed and repented and believed in Jesus? Or are you finding yourself like Saul, lying there asking God, why are you so distant? To which he would say, I'm not even paying attention to you anymore. He leaves Saul, church. He leaves him. That's the first point. I feel like we could almost take communion on that, huh? That's just the first one, though. We got, we got two more to go, okay? So, so much for time, guys. Uh, Samuel 12 through 20. I'm going to read this. It's a bit to read. We're going to see Samuel's unchanging word. First, Saul's unchanging heart. Samuel's unchanging word. Hopefully, we will find some exhortation in here. Verse 12 says this. Put it up for me. Uh, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman, because he couldn't see that. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and he paid homage. Verse 15, excuse me, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, listen to this, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has, if you remember the sermon, torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. That happened four or five chapters ago. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. If you remember Amalek, he was the king that Saul kidnapped, put in a birdcage, and then built a monument to himself. Do you remember that? Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day that he said he would do. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your son shall be with me. Hey, listen, if you do summon up a ghost, that ain't what you want to hear right there. <laughs> like, you were just hoping to talk to crazy Uncle Carl, turns out. You and your whole family's going to be with him tomorrow, you know? Listen, 
it gets worse. The Lord will give not only you, not only your sons, the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all the day and all the night. And so Saul uh, came in, right, comes into the story, lying in the baggage, fearful of his kingship. Saul found here again at the end of his time, this is the last 24 hours of his life, lying again prostrate on the ground in fear of his kingship. But isn't it interesting that Saul goes back to Samuel? Of all the people, of all the things, all the ways, he goes back to Samuel. And Saul goes back to Samuel because he knows no matter how difficult the conversation, no matter how hard Samuel's going to have to speak to him, Samuel's going to shoot him straight. He knows at the end of the day, Saul knows at the end of the day, that Samuel is only going to speak the word of God to Saul. Saul knows at the end of the day, of all the other voices that exist in the world, of all the other omens, all the other prophets, all the other divinities that he could have raised, that God's word is the only source of hope and truth and life for him. He doesn't profess faith in it, but he knows at the end of the day. And with that in mind, I just want to, let me take a minute and exhort some of you. What I mean by exhort is let me just encourage you in the Bible. Some of us in the room have the gift of exhortation. That's a, that's a Holy Spirit-given gift. That, that means that, and so I'll use me as an example, that means I have a way of, sh- of telling you really, really hard things, and somehow at the end of it, you feel loved. It's kind of a, a love-hate relationship. You're like, I kind of want to punch you in the face, but you also make me laugh. So I don't know how to handle you right now, right? Like, you just gave me God's word, but I also want to hurt you. And so there's a lot of us in our church, though, that have that. That's a gift from the Holy Spirit. We can say, here's what the word says, and people feel Encouraged. No matter how hard, how difficult it is, it is important that we exhort, right? And all we're doing then is just using the word of God to encourage the men and women that sit across the table from us. And so for those of you in the room, listen, and online, that are willing to step into the hard, I mean step into the difficult, uncomfortable conversations, I want to exhort you in saying, remain faithful to the word of God. Because at the end of the day, those people that just keep coming to you, and you know them, They're in your families, they're your friends, they're in your missional communities. They keep coming with the exact same problem again and again and again and again and again. And you're like, I don't want to do this again. It's 930. We already did this last week. They just keep coming back to you over and over and over. Have I made my point? At the end of the day, they know that you're the only source of truth and hope in their life. And the reality is this. If their hearts remain as unchanging as God's word you will be the only divine voice in their life because the Father will remain silent on their issues if they are unrepentant. And so I want to encourage you, like, remain faithful in that, church. Like, be bold to exhort. Don't overstep, not in a proud way, not in an arrogant way, not in a way that is overly offensive and pushing people away, but just through the word of God because it is unchanging. Encourage and exhort brothers and sisters that are about in front of you. I would say be bold, church, and be unapologetic with God's word. This week, we did have a bunch of travel. David put on a, a huge pastor's conference for hundreds and hundreds of pastors from Illinois that we got to go to in Springfield. And I got to go, me and uh, Mark Hanna, who leads worship, and my wife, Andrea, went to, where are we at? Wichita, Kansas, six and a half, seven hour drive to uh, officiate a funeral there for one of the uh, covenant members of our church who lost their dad and came back. We had a, a crazy week of travel. 
And the thing Jeff called, the pastor who's not here, because he's in Chicago because his grandma passed away last week. If you remember, while he was leading, he learned, found out that his grandmother had passed away. Incredible week of travel for all of us as staff pastors. And Jeff called, and he's like, how are you doing? I was like, I'm doing okay. And he's like, well, I just felt like I needed to impress upon you. I know you, you got a couple different teaching things you got to do. You got this funeral and some other stuff. He said this. He said, I just want to encourage you, just preach the word of God. It's unchanging. Just remain faithful to the word. As I was sitting there trying to figure out how do I feel, you know, at least 42 minutes of my 35 minutes here, and like how do I write a sermon for a funeral, and how do I do travel to Springfield a couple times this week just to be with David and them, and it's like, man, what do I do? And I just felt like the spirit was like, dude, just preach the word. Just remain faithful to it. So what, well, I don't know what to preach. I told Debbie, when I don't know what to preach, I'm just going to give you a bunch of scripture because it'll preach because the word of God is unchanging. Listen, whenever people, when they come back to you again and again and again and again, it's because they know that you are the divine voice in their life to lead them to hope. Whether they respond to that hope or not, church, is not on you. Your job is to remain faithful. That's exactly what Samuel does here in the text. He remains faithful to exhort King Saul whenever King Saul is at his all-time low. Right? He doesn't look at him and he doesn't give him some kind of fluffy answer. What he says to him is this, God already told you what was going to happen and then he did that thing and now you're living in it. Like you reaped what you sold, Saul. Right? He doesn't try to fluff up anything. He just sticks to the word of God and we, the exhortation for us as a church is that no matter how difficult the conversation, no matter how cumbersome the relationship, no matter how impatient we might be with someone, what is the call and the command to do? To remain faithful because the word of God is what? It's unchanging. It's the only thing that will change hearts. It's not our responsibility to change anyone's heart. What's beautiful about that is it leads us into the gospel is this. Man, God's heart was also unchanging. And God's word was unchanging. And and that's the only unchanging heart that needs to be allowed in the cosmos is God's. Because he set out a plan long before this text was ever written, long before we ever got the set in here on a Sunday, and he said, man, my heart is going to put on flesh, and my unchanging word is going to put on flesh, and he's going to come and walk among us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's how we see, that's where we most perfectly get to see the unchanging heart of God and the unchanging word of God as we see this beautiful collision in the gospel of Jesus. And he comes, and he walks among his humanity, and what he does is says this, I'm the only divine word that actually matters. I'm the only one that can actually bring change. I am unchanging. And so the unchanging comes and steps into creation to bring change, to change and to rapture the most hardened hearts that one could ever imagine. He's full of grace and he's full of mercy. And in these moments like this or during worship sets and when you see baptisms, all of that, everything that we do as a church is not to make you or myself feel good, it's to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and victor over sin, period, forever. And so our call then is to confess faith in him. Confess, profess faith in him. Confess sins, profess faith in him. To, and that doesn't like, I don't mean that in some, like, some cheesy way. I know the word repentance has been downplayed by the church for some reason. What that means is that we look at our life situation and we look at the life of Christ and we say, man, you're so much better. You're the only voice that I need. And I don't have to kill myself and beat myself up because you went to the cross in my place as my substitute. You restore my identity the way you've always seen me as possible by professing faith in you. And as if that were not enough, Jesus resurrects from the dead, sends us his Holy Spirit to do what? To renew our hearts. 
Our hearts are dead and foul and stone. And the Holy Spirit steps in and says, charge them up. Boom, new life. Regeneration happens. Heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh. New identity given, not by our works, church, but by Jesus' work in our place that's only possible because his heart is unchanging and his word is unchanging. Our hearts are fleeting, constantly changing, constantly bowing to other voices. And so I would exhort you one more time to do this, to profess, to confess, to repent, to spend time getting to know this Jesus in the way that he wants to speak life into your life. Amen? Amen. If you could stand with me, we'll take communion together. The team will come back up here and serve us.